Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. I've always been fascinated, well, not always, but ever since I read about the subject, I've been fascinated with postmodernism and the influence that it has on our modern society. And um, actually, we all are very fortunate today to have with us the man who actually wrote the first book I ever read on the subject. He's a professor of philosophy at Rockford University. He's the executive director of the Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship, and he's a senior scholar at the Atlas Society. And he's also author of numerous books, including Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to, and I'm going to butcher the name, Facou or Foucault. Foucault. I'm not really sure. Foucault. Well, at any rate, Professor Stephen Hicks, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for the invitation, Michael. Okay, so I guess the best place to begin is with a description. What is postmodernism? Well, the uh, best way to answer that is by taking the big compound word and breaking it down. It's post, which is after modernism. And so what the postmoderns are doing, the intellectuals and the cultural activists, is taking the entire modern world and saying that that is a failure, uh, that it was wrong philosophically, wrong intellectually, wrong in terms of its institutions. Uh, they tend to believe that the modern world that has been created that we are living in has led to a disaster, various forms of deep dysfunctionality. So what we need to do is reject the modern world, its ideas, its institutions fundamentally, and then do something else, go beyond it, go post on it. So what are the origins of this way of thinking? And who are well, some of the prominent theorists within yeah, the postmodern well, tradition? Those famous names associated would be uh, someone like Michel Foucault, with a, a French thinker with an international reputation. He's one of the top two or three most cited people in the social science literature for the past generation. Uh, uh, also, uh, Jacques Derrida is another uh, famous name associated with the movement. Uh, Richard Rorty, an American, uh, he's uh, often labeled as a postmodernist. Sometimes he prefers the label neo-pragmatist, but there are some very close connections there. Uh, also, uh, uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, uh, another French intellectual. So the probably the most famous names are the three French intellectuals and one American intellectual. They're all uh, philosophy PhDs. They all graduated in the middle part of the 20th century, getting first-rate educations in philosophy. And so uh, a large amount of uh, postmodernism with its skepticism, its uh, cynicism about knowledge, the consequent subjectivisms, relativisms, there's a whole series of sub-issues there. Uh, they are the ones who are most uh, 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 philosophically astute and, and, and competent at making the arguments for the postmodern position. They're also uh, all politically active uh, uh, young men uh, committed to a certain kind of politics, but also thinking that that politics needs a Restrategizing in the middle part of the 20th century. So they're the ones who, uh, in my estimation, and most people's estimations, are the ones who most uh, signal the new direction, put the new movement on its intellectual footing. Now, what they are reacting against, all of them explicitly will say that the modern world, the modern intellectual framework, uh, is, uh, is wrong. 
it, and it's led to a disaster in practice. So what they mean by that is the emphasis on reason, the emphasis on uh, rationality, the emphasis upon scientific method, that through uh, uh, it we can figure out deep truths about the world. Uh, they are opposed to the idea that we can, through the knowledge that we acquire through reason, through science, use that to improve the human condition and that that's what we've been doing for the last few centuries. They're opposed to the individuality and the individualism of the modern world, that, that we should all be a free agents, see ourselves as self-responsible, be tolerant of other people's going their own ways and believing sometimes weird things from our individual perspectives. They're opposed to the individualism that's built into democratic and republican politics. They're opposed to the individualism that's built into free market capitalism, seeing individuals as kind of masters of their own economic destinies and so on. So they're opposed to that whole philosophical, intellectual, and cultural framework that was developed in the early part of the modern world. They see uh, all of it as having uh, been bankrupted intellectually and has uh, as leading to terrible pathologies culturally. So they want to, so to speak, mount an intellectual revolution and also a revolution that will take us culturally in a very different direction. So this is bizarre to me. I mean, they talk about reason is not our means of knowledge. There's no way to come to an objective morality. They oppose capitalism, which has brought unprecedented prosperity to the world. So how does a philosophy like this take hold? Mm. Because it has. I mean, it's taken hold in academia, in pop culture. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, I think there's always two routes uh, that are possible. One is uh, the kind of the long road that works uh, institutionally and more socially, and that's the, the work of the philosophers and the intellectuals in various disciplines, history, law, literature, and so forth, but they do the philosophical work in those disciplines. And if they come to be convinced intellectually of skepticism, uh, and its consequent subjectivisms and relativisms and so forth. That is to say, if the deepest thinkers in the intellectual spaces come not to believe in reason, but to believe that reason uh, is a failure and should be seen as a failure, then they will have deep impacts because they are the ones then who uh, uh, whose arguments carry the day for the rest of the people in their disciplines, Many of them are at universities, so they are teaching uh, 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 you know, the next generation of journalists and lawyers and, and preachers and so forth, the people who go out and do the cultural work. They also are typically, if they are at the, uh, the best universities and most influential, the ones who then teach the next generation of intellectuals who end up taking the professor positions at the best universities. And so uh, uh, to the extent then that you get a skeptical critical mass in the intellectual world, particularly the intellectual, the elite rather intellectual world, then it becomes very hard to dislodge because then it takes genius thinkers who are able to think outside of that box and then also make the arguments effectively. I think though it also uh, comes from another direction that uh, this is more broadly uh, psychological rather 
because uh, it's not the case that everybody who's attracted to postmodernism reads Foucault and thinks deeply about epistemology and so forth. Uh, instead, what can happen is people who have psychological weaknesses, and in some cases outright psychological pathologies, uh, rather than seeking help and trying to fix those, they are looking for intellectual frameworks that will justify them in their psychological problem. So for whatever reason, if you grow up hating other people, hating the world, if you, uh, then a philosophy that comes along and rationalizes that hatred will be attractive to you. So I don't want to make the argument that everybody who becomes a postmodernist comes to it through philosophy. In many cases, they're getting there through uh, through uh, through more psychological routes. So I think what we've seen in the last generation is a, a symbiosis of the two of those. Uh, 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 in the intellectual world, the postmodern thinkers did become a significant minority and also a very active minority, and they had a strategy. And so they acquired a certain amount of power. But then they also attracted a large number of people who liked the sound of postmodernism, you know, deconstruction and emptiness and uh, and just, you know, hating and uh, and going out and destroying things uh, on the streets uh, and, and so forth. Uh, and then those two then form a kind of coalition of intellectuals and activists in a in a, in a negative spiral. So it sounds like it's appealing to people, for instance, that can't make it in the modern economy. And then this philosophy comes along and says, well, capitalism is no good. And the guy says, I know it's not me. Or, you know, the reason is impotent. You can't gain knowledge. And then somebody who's failing academically can say, oh, it, it's the system's fault. It's it's not my fault. And it, that offers a large incentive for people to sort of be attracted to this philosophy. Well, yes, it is. So those are more on the psychological side. So if you think when one is a young person and one's developing one's skills and one's uh, one's sense of oneself, uh, for most people, I think healthy people, that's it's got its challenges and you have moments of self-doubt about this, that, and the other thing. But at the same time, it's your life project and uh, and hopefully you sense I can take this on. And if I don't know I uh, how to do something, I can figure out how to do something. And I know I'm going to have a certain number of failures. I can take those in stride and find a way to recover and, and try again and succeed the next time. So that I think is all normal and healthy development. But yes, there are uh, people in any generation who will fail, who or even if they're not failing they will feel that they are a failure and they will look for a way to excuse themselves from the failure. And so the various routes that you just summarized are going to be there. So, you know, for example, uh, you know, if we have a more open market economy, the one that says you are an individual, you are a free agent and you are responsible for your economic life. Well, for most of us, that sounds great. Right? I can do whatever I want and I think I can become a millionaire, right, or whatever it is, my goal, or I can start my own business. But other people are afraid of that. And uh, maybe they didn't have good parenting or whatever it is, but you know, leave that in the, in the background for further explanation. But uh, any ideology from a teacher that tells them, if you fail, it's not your fault, or 
you should not even try to succeed too much because the system is rigged against you because you're a girl, because you're of the wrong race or you're the wrong religion, uh, that there are all of these biases set up to make sure that you fail and that people who are in the positions of power are going to try to keep you down. All of those will simultaneously justify to you not having to make the effort. And when you do make an effort and fail, it will give you an excuse not to uh, blame yourself for the failure. So that can happen in a dozen different versions. And postmodernism at a very high level does exactly that. So my guess is most people have never heard of postmodernism. Nonetheless, they're influenced by it. Sure. But I'm quite sure that, if not most, a significant amount of people have heard of things like critical race theory, uh, the wokeism, either in its pejorative sense or in the the, the uh, original sense of I'm an enlightened soul or, or, or whatever. Right. Or political correctness or DEI and right. so on. Yes. So how has postmodernism influenced the development of these ideologies? Yeah, it's like the you know the difference between wholesale and retail in the in the business world. So you can make at the wholesale level a number of generic products, and then what different retailers do will is they will customize it and tailor it for particular submarkets. So I think of postmodernism as the wholesaler, so to speak. It's developing a more general abstract set of ideas that can then serve as a template. So for example, suppose you say, I don't think human beings are individuals. I don't think people learn to think for themselves. I don't think people learn to act for themselves. So for whatever general philosophical reason, you reject individualism. And you say then instead, people are part of a collective. They are shaped by their group memberships, and their group memberships shape how they think, uh, what their values are, and different groups are in, uh, in, in conflict with each other, and it's my group versus your group, and so forth. So that then is to say you reject the individualism in general, and you embrace some kind of collectivism in general. But that collectivism in general can be tailored because then you ask the follow-up question, well, what is the most important group that is a part of my identity? Now, what you can then do is to say, well, it's your gender or your sex group. And you can have then an analysis that will say, yes, we're all parts of collectives, but the most important collective is your sex slash gender identity. There's males in the world and they are shaped to think and behave a certain way. And there are females in the world, and they are shaped to think and behave in a certain way. And those two groups are in conflict with each other. So then what you would have is a collectivism that is a, say, feminist version of collectivism. And your entire uh, uh, intellectual and activist project would be, uh, be on behalf of a particular group that you see as being in conflict with another group. But you could say, take the same general collectivism and say, no, the most important grouping is not biological sex or social gender construct. Rather, it is economic. It's your class membership. It's rich people versus poor people. It's people who own 
assets and property and people who do not own assets and property. That people are shaped by, in their thinking and their behavior, by their economic upbringing. And it's the rich versus the poor. And it's not male and female because males and females are in both of these groups. Right? And so then what you will do is, in that version of collectivism, intellectually and your activism is become an economic class warrior. And you will see yourself at some level as opposed to the gender feminists, right? But, but uh, at the same uh, time, you're agreeing on some abstract principles about a different. You can do the same thing with respect to race and say, no, it's not economic classes. It's not biological uh, uh, sex or, 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 or gender. Instead, the most important collective groupings are racial groupings. It's white people versus brown people versus black people versus yellow people. And so people are in racial groups, and it's these different racial groups. Sometimes they have their own epistemologies or their own forms of knowledge and ways of knowing and their habits, but all of the racial groups are in conflict with each other. And so you will then become a, an intellectual warrior or a cultural warrior uh, in the race wars as you see it. And sometimes it will not be any of those, it will be ethnicity. Right? You'll say, no, it's the Turks versus the Greeks, or it's the Koreans versus the Japanese. So it's not really race, it's not biology, it's not economics, it's ethnic identities. No, so the point is, all of those seem like they're quite different from each other, but they're all variations on a collectivist theme uh, at a high philosophical level, and all of them are rejecting philosophically and individualism. So. Yes, they won't have heard of the philosophical collectivism and the philosophical determinism, and they won't have read any of the theorists that justify that at the general level, but they will have heard of things like you know, critical race theory, right, which is a particular application for it, or critical ethnic studies, or critical feminist theory, right, and, and, and uh and uh, uh, various forms of Marxism that come out in political correctness in various forms that are emphasizing the race war. So they'll hear all of the retail versions without necessarily being aware of the, the wholesaling behind it. I think when people think academia, it's associated with the left in, in mm. politics and thought. And this postmodernism sounds very much like a, a left-wing ideology. But I can see or hear echoes of it in the right-wing populism that we have. I mean, for instance, when Rudy Giuliani was on Meet the Press and he said, truth is not the truth, mm. or uh, what was her name, Kellyanne Conway talking about the crowds at Trump's inauguration, and she said that Sean Spicer had alternative facts, mm. or in the myriad ways in which truth is denied the things that we see with our own eyes are, are said no that didn't really happen the way you think it happened in what ways has postmodernism influenced things like the rise of donald trump or yeah. the echo chambers that people now isolate themselves inside or the, the breakdown in trust in traditional institutions like the media the fbi the universities yeah Okay, that's a that's a big question that uh, puts a lot of sub themes and uh, sub threads to follow into it. But yes, the general thrust of your question, I think, is exactly right. There are many philosophies that will deny truth and then say what it means to do the philosophy post truth or in the absence of truth. 
It's also the case that many religions will say, we don't need to worry about truth and reason and defending our religion rationally. And then they will uh, adopt kind of non-reason and non-rational epistemologies in their way of doing religion. And the same thing is true in politics, that you can say politics is not about truth. There are no truths and so forth. And then ask, what is it to do politics in a post-truth direction? So that then is to say the epistemological issues or the issues about knowledge, facts, truth, objectivity, again, are operating at the wholesale level. And if you abandon that rational epistemology or that rational pro-reason approach to knowledge, and you then say, I'm interested in religion in particular, or I'm interested in art in particular, or politics in particular, you will then be tailoring uh, those more general principles for that domain in particular. Now, the examples that you mentioned were mostly political examples, Giuliani, the Trump phenomenon, and, and so forth. Uh, and I think it is true to say that in the past generation, there has been a rise of postmodern skepticism and this post-truth approach to politics also on the right, not only on the left. So it, I think, is partly a product of history that it was the left, the far left, that first started to play around seriously with postmodern ideas, and then to start mounting explicit activist strategies based on postmodern skeptical, uh, uh, relativistic post-truth epistemologies. But when the, the left had been doing that for about a generation, starting, I would say, late 1960s uh, as an activist strategy, 1970s, 1980s, what started to happen then on the right, the, and I'm going to put these in quotation marks, these are more journalistic labels, is that the right started to say, okay, well, if that's how you want to play the game, we also will play the game. And so it was, as the right often is, a, a reactionary phenomenon. So you started to see postmodern versions of right politics. Now, I want to say this is a little more reactionary because the right, at least in modern times, by which I mean 1700s, 1800s, and the early part of the 2000s, the right uh, uh, politically would uh, uh, often bill itself and say, no, no, we are concerned with absolute truth, objective truth, with universal truth. And we think that there should be right, all of these uh, uh, principles that are held as absolutes, that are universal to human beings, and that they are and should be uh, uh, striven for in an objective fashion. It's not just, you know, make up your own ethics, make up your own politics and do whatever you feel. So the right, uh, not uniformly, the, the right still is a fairly big tent, but I would say that the main thread of the right was the quest for grounding politics in some sort of universal justice, uh, uh, absolute rights of human beings. But the right also then came to abandon that, uh, partly in reaction to the postmodern left. And partly it was a matter of saying, well, if we're going to do the kind of street fighting that you have to do in day-to-day -day politics, which can get pretty dirty, 
then we're also going to resort to the same sort of strategies and tactics that the left has been using. But also part of it was intellectual that uh, the, uh, the theoreticians on the right also started to be less convinced that one could uh, 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 be rational, achieve objectivity, and so forth in, in politics. So it's been a, a downward spiral. And so Giuliani, the phenomenon of the 1990s, uh, largely. So I think you're right to say you can start to see him as a as a as a, a a change, a transition figure. Then by the time we get to someone like Trump, 20 years later, uh, uh, where uh, you know, excuse my my language, that you know, you you start doing politics as uh, an exercise in high bullshitting, right? <laughs> Right, which Trump is a master at, then, uh, then, then you know we are more into a, a postmodern era with Trump as well. I interviewed a guy yesterday, and we were talking about multiculturalism. Culturalism, and he said multiculturalism is basically an anti-Western philosophy. And it reminded me of in your book explaining postmodernism. There was a, an excellent sort of flow you had. I don't mm. remember exactly what you said, but in essence, it was. They criticize the West for oppressing poor people, but they have to know that the West has done more to lift people out of poverty than any other culture. They, right. You said they criticize the West for oppressing women when they know that it's the ideas that came out of the West that have lifted women out of their plight. And you went right down the line through race, class, everything. And they have to know that, right? Uh, like th th there's no escaping if you compare the United States of America, for instance, with N North Korea or even China, right, or the Middle East. I mean, you forget yeah. about it. There's no mistaking what the West has accomplished. So, what is this just abject hatred for the West? And is there does there have to be an element of dishonesty involved? Because it seems to me there does. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a deep and a and a hard question. And here I, I want to make a distinction between uh, the intellectuals, right, whom you would say they really should know better, because that's their, their business, to know ideas, to know the arguments, and to know the data that's relevant to their, to their theoretical positions. And on the other hand, kind of the ordinary run-of-the-mill person who's interested in intellectual matters, cultural matters, but is not a professional intellectual. So let's take the first side of the divide, the people who are professional intellectuals. Um, <clears throat> I think that might be a little bit strong, just because I still want to float the hypothesis that one occupational hazard of intellectuals is when one is young to adopt a theoretical position. It can be a religion, it can be a philosophy, an approach to history, an approach to politics or whatever. Before you know a lot about the data about the history or even about the arguments for various other perspectives. Some ideology comes along, it captures your mind, and you make a commitment to that ideology. And then you stop thinking right, uh, in any open-minded sense. And instead, what happens is you put on these ideological blinders as a young person now, whether this is excusable or not is a, is, is a supplemental question or not. But from then on, all you do is interpret and reinterpret 
everything that you come across in terms of that particular ideology, that you will never change your mind about that ideology, no matter how baroque and complicated and after the fact your rationalizations are for your position, you see the world only through that, through that perspective. So there is an occupational hazard for people who deal in high abstractions to uh, make those high set of abstractions self-sealing and never in effect encounter the real world, so to speak. And this is the, the myth that we have or the, the stereotype that we have of people in the ivory tower and part of what that metaphor is meant is to say that you know they are so distant from the real world that the the real world and its data does not make an impact on their theorizing. So, I think there needs to be more uh, psychological ex uh, experimenting <laughs> in the sense of actually investigating these people to see to what extent they are just in a intellectual bubble. And to what extent they are uh, dishonestly staying in an intellectual bubble. Now, I want to leave that as a as a hypothesis. I have my my doubts about that, and I do think that the vast majority of intellectuals, because I know a large number of them I, I, in my in my career inside the academic world, who do in fact know better, right? And so this is the person that you're starting to talk about. So they might be a feminist, for example, who will just say, you know, we hate women. It's a war against women. Girls have no chance. We're oppressed, et cetera. Uh, at the same time, they are aware of the historical data. They are aware of the cross-cultural data about the status of Western women, say, relative to other parts of the women. They know from their own biography, right, that in many cases, these are accomplished women right who are now professors at at, uh, at prestigious universities so they have all of the historical data and all of the social science data and their own personal biographical data but nonetheless they are committed to an ideology and there i do think there is a strong element of dishonesty because you see what they will often do is when presented with the cross-cultural data they will just ignore it they will divert the subject to something else or they'll just come back to their their uh, their 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 talking points. Or if there is historical data that is presented, they will do the the exact same sort of uh, the same sort of thing. And so you can uh, obviously see them doing that in those cases. The same thing with the race theorists. The same things with the uh, the ethnic theorists, and the same people uh, thing with the people who are hostile to science, hostile to technology, and uh, and so forth. So I do think there is a strong element of dishonesty at work uh, and they they realize it now what postmodernism adds is a rationalization for that dishonesty so it's not just the run-of-the-mill thing that i'm a person and i've got my theory and i really want my theory to be true i want my religion to be true or my politics to be true or my scientific theory or whatever it is to be true and so people resist the criticisms against their theory or try to find ways to bracket things that are objections to their theory and set them aside. What postmodernism is doing is explicitly saying you don't need to worry about empirical evidence. You don't need to worry about logical criticisms. You don't need to worry that what you're saying over here is consistent with what you are saying over here, the internal inconsistency. It's an overlay that at the kind of the meta level 
or the wholesale level again as saying that all of those things are exploded. The philosophers have told us that those are all myths anyway, so don't worry about that. Just do subjectively whatever it is that you want to do. I'm sorry, you went silent on me. I can't hear you. At the... My fault. I had myself muted. Mm. <laughs> My mistake. So I'm often told on social media that the left is such a dire threat that the best thing to do politically is to side with uh, you know, the MAGA movement. That to me just seems uh, absurd that I would try to oppose an anti-reason philosophy with an anti-reason philosophy. But I want you to take a look, short game, long game. What is the best way out of this i mean in your it's it's in your you know opinion it's a hypothesis but is it to side with an irrational viewpoint mm. that might help us defeat one end or is it just to stay consistent because i i have my view but i'm curious what yours is yeah my my thinking on this sort of question always is uh to don't think of it this issue primarily in terms of politics I mean, politics matters, and we, we need to get to the politics, but I think, think of this with respect to your own life. Uh, if you say, okay, there are some people I disagree with, whatever their perspective are, and they are irrational and doing all of these uncivil and anti-civil and nihilistic things, therefore, I am going to join them and just play their game, but from on behalf of my values. What will that do to you? Right? And that, I think, is an extraordinarily self-destructive thing. So the first thing you want to do is live the cognitively cleanest life you can, epistemologically, the healthiest life you can. Have a deep respect for facts, for intellectual honesty, for figuring things out logically and as consistently as you possibly can and be good in your own mind. And then, of course, translate that into your habits of action, how you act in the world, with your friends, with your children, in your business, with your romantic partners. Make sure that you are philosophically living the cleanest, healthiest, most objective life you can. But that's the most important thing. Don't let the cynicism the nihilism, the self-destructiveness of other people infect you in your own life. That's number one. So number two, though, then is to say at the same time, we do live in a culture right, where the main political movements have mixtures of rationality and irrationality, mixtures of justice and injustice and so forth. And it doesn't seem, uh, speaking from my perspective, <laughs> that my preferred political options are well represented in the current landscape. So then it becomes a question, how can I act in that world to protect myself, not let myself become infected by the cynicism and the self-destructiveness, but at the same time do uh, uh, more broad damage control so that the, the, uh, the most worst <laughs> Political philosophies and political parties are doing the least amount of damage that is possible. And I think a lot of that uh, requires much more fine-grained journalistic analysis about what issues are 
most pressing and most likely to be pressing in the next three to four years. Right? Uh, and in many cases, it will be uh, that this party is not really in the 20-year horizon any better than that party, or at the level of broad philosophical abstraction, right? They both have fatal flaws and have great potential for, for damage. But it might be the case that on the particular issues that are going to be front burner cultural and political issues for the next three to four years, this side is worse. And this side is bad, but not so bad. Right? In which case you would seriously consider voting for this side. But in order to get to that position, you have to consider every election cycle, what you think are the top 20 issues say and then make a judgment call about which three or four of those top 20 issues are in fact the front burner issues for the next three or four years and vote on the basis of that. So that's the very general advice that I would, I would say right now. So when you then uh, detail it to levels of specific, I, I'm going to, uh, to back away because I don't comment very particularly on day-to-day -day politics or even year-to-year -year politics. Uh, 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 I'm very, cherry about that, or sticking to my, my level of, uh, of, of professional expertise. Uh, but uh, I would say um, in any particular election cycle, uh, you're going to have better and worse options. And I would say always make clear to yourself and to other people in your social circle, if you are going to vote, and I think people should vote, uh, be a reasonable person, explain why you're voting the way that you are voting, and you will have some influence uh, in your social circle because people will recognize you for the kind of quality, thoughtful, reasonable person that you are. I love that phrase you used about being cognitively clean uh, because I have plenty of friends that have voted one way or the other because it was the lesser of two evils. And I would never beat somebody up over that, right? When your choices are bad, you do the best that you can do. Yeah. What what I find happening is a lack of that cognitive cleanliness you talked about, where somebody will start to support a candidate based on, I have to go for the lesser of two evils, and then end up defending everything the candidate does. Yeah. And that right. that is that would be my concern. So yeah. my last question for you is you, I'm guessing as a professor, deal with a lot of young people and you presenting them these ideas, logic, reason, pro-capitalism, pro-Ayn Rand, right? What does the, in your view, are they receptive? What's the future look like mm. based on yeah. the kids that you're dealing with? Yeah, I would say, yeah, I do all of that that you just said, but I also do the opposite. Because my approach to university education is that students on any difficult, abstract issue, particularly the ones that are controversial, they need to know the best positions and the best arguments and counter arguments on all sides. So uh, if you look at any of the, my, the syllabi in my course, yes, there will be uh, philosophers in there whom I agree with but they will be matched with philosophers whom I disagree with violently in many cases. But it's not my first responsibility, particularly with the freshmen and sophomores in their first couple of years of university, to put my thumb too much on the scale one way or the other. They need to get up to speed on what the major issues are, what the best arguments on both sides are, the counter arguments, so that they are in a position to 
think the issues through and make their own decision. Uh, so uh, by the time they get to know me, and there's another natural fear in a, an increasingly postmodern era that students will have that if they say the wrong opinion, their professor will downgrade them or failure, uh, fail them or, or give them various sorts of social grief. And that's a, that's a serious problem. It's, and it's only gotten worse in my career over the time of my career as a, uh, as a professor, you know, increasing number of explicitly dogmatic kind of anti-liberal education professors. And that's mostly due to postmodernism uh, uh, getting worse and worse institutionally inside the, inside the field. But once students, I think, are up to speed and they know me individually as a professor, uh, then I'm fine with saying, and here's what I think on this particular issue. Here's how I would respond to the various uh, objections and so forth. But the bottom line always is that the student needs to be respected uh, for making up his or her own mind on, uh, on whatever the particular issue. Now, what I have found, to come then specifically to your question, is that most students are open-minded. They have been, you know, I don't try not to sound like an old professor here, uh, kind of undereducated <laughs> and ill-prepared uh, by, their, by their high school education. But, uh, and in some cases, they have been uh, indoctrinated. And, uh, uh, but nonetheless, they are not set in stone yet, or, or, or uh, the, the concrete has not set in their minds. And so when it's presented to them, you know, here are these important issues. These are really cool topics. They are still human beings. They're still young. And they get excited grappling with these ideas. And in many cases, they say, oh, I've never thought about that. And whoa, maybe I, I'm wrong about various things. Most students, most of the time, are willing to go with the flow on that. Now, that's most students. I have a minority of students, and they come from all perspectives. Some of them are already politically committed to a very specific position, and they're not going to change their minds, or they're committed religiously to a very specific position. They're not going to change their minds. So they're, they're closed already at age 18, but that's, that's a minority of students. Okay, Professor, is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have or that we didn't get to talk about that's relevant to the subject? I mean, obviously, we could talk for, for months on yeah. it. Well, just, yeah, one closing remark. I'd say I think the long battle is the more important battle, and this is partly me as a philosopher seeing philosophy as the most important thing, and philosophy is always for the long game. So we are in a certain cultural moment where there's a lot of cynicism and skepticism and, and, and uh, bad polarization out there. But it was uh, bad ideas, I would say, that got us into that. Bad ideas developed over the course of the 20th century, or we are now dealing with the, the rotten fruits, so to speak. So uh, uh, with good ideas, and there is the beginning of a counter-revolution, people getting up to speed on what those important ideas are. And more articulate, stronger versions of those better ideas being made. I'm uh, cautiously optimistic that we will uh, we'll see progress over the next ten years on these cultural battles. Oh, oh okay. I was having problems unmuting. Fair okay, enough. Professor. So, where can people find you? Well, uh, I would say first go to my uh, my center's uh, YouTube channel, CEE video channel. It's just CEE, -E, Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship 
So if you're interested in audio stuff and video stuff, we have a huge library of materials there on philosophical and related topics. And then uh, I have my website, my professional website, stephenhicks.org.org. And there I post on a variety of topics and uh, link to various things. So thanks for asking that. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's been a very enlightening discussion. Great. Pleasure. Great questions, Michael. All Thank the best. You. For now, this is The Rational Egoist signing out. I'm Michael Leibowitz. Remember, let me know your thoughts, your likes, your dislikes, and share the episode. It helps. Till next time.